Uh, you guys know my Gmail address? Who knows my Gmail address? Scott B dot, S-C-O-T-T, the letter B, D-O-T, at gmail.com. And that's because as a kid I couldn't spell my last name, Bessenecker. So I just, you know, Scott B. Dot, hey, I'm Scott B. Dot, and that caught on. And so I was called by my family, Scott B. Dot or Scotty B. Dotty, and that sort of identity stuck. Um, is a great name. Uh, I think if you take it apart literally in German, it might mean broom corner. Bessen with one S and Ecker without the R is Broom Corner. So anyway, for what it's worth, what's cool about the name is any Bessenecker that you meet is related to me. Like as far as I know, it is a completely unique name. So I'm the only Scott Bessenecker as far as I know uh, on Facebook Now, that goes two ways. You know, the Bessenecker name can bring glory or shame, depending on which Bessenecker is being focused upon. And so there's a certain kind of pressure that, like, okay, anything I do or say that is glorious or notorious will reflect on the rest of the family. So most of us, in fact, like most of humanity for most of history... It's the name, it's the sort of family, clan, tribe, like that's the key identity for people and probably for all of us when we're little, family is how we get a sense of group identity. And it can, you can, you know, bring honor or shame on your family name uh, based on your behavior and your relatives can bring honor or shame on you based on their behavior. So this idea of group identity, of course, has been around for a long time. If we're thinking about, you know, family and then a larger circle, maybe clan and then tribe, Uh, we're all uh, tribal people. I mean, we all come from tribal roots. Jesus was a tribal boy, right? Tribe of Judah. We all have kind of indigenous roots for whom... That idea of association with this group is very, very key in how we understand ourselves. Um, a friend of mine, he's passed away now in Mexico City, Saul Cruz, started a variety of ministries, very well-respected psychologist, and his wife, also a therapist, very well-respected, but Saul uh, connected himself with people on the, on the margins and would try to, you know, create businesses or various things that would employ people on the margins, specifically look for those economically dispossessed people to be employees. One of those people was Mary, and Mary had a very, very troubled uh, past. So from a child, she was uh, terribly abused, actually chained up, and spent the, the majority of her young life into young adulthood as a prisoner. Really, really messed with her. She escaped and was mostly on the streets, you know, in her probably 40s, although maybe she looked older than she actually was. Saul brings her in, and uh, she has a housekeeping job in one of Saul's guest houses. Well, the, the other employees and housekeepers 
would heap all sorts of abuse on Mary. She was socially out of touch. I mean, she basically grew up outside of social interaction. As a result, she had some physical and some mental and certainly emotional baggage. So she was awkward, didn't know how to get along with folk, and and they ridiculed her and um, were mean-spirited to her. I thought what Saul did was pretty interesting, and I don't know if this um, exists in other cultures, but there was a way that Saul could, even though she was more or less his age, adopt her into his family line. She could take his family name, Cruz. As soon as he went through the procedures to do that, all abuse stopped. She was Saul's cousin, and you don't, you know, you don't ridicule or heap abuse on this family line. And that kind of being brought into a family of uh, respect, it's a little bit of a you know, Christian motif of coming into God's family, and I think Betsy mentioned, like, we get the inheritance. I mean, we, we're sharing in this family line. That's not why we're there necessarily, but, like, there is something about becoming a daughter of a respected family and taking on a respected family name that changes your position. Your, even, I believe, Mary's self-concept was moved, adapted, transitioned by this process. She's the same person. She has a different last name now and a different concept of herself, and others have a different concept of her. That's just an interesting analogy for being adopted into the the family of God. We're more or less in a modern society, so this is true still in a lot of rural places. I think it was 2007, the earth stopped becoming a rural place. It's an urban place now. You know, roughly 50% or more of the people on this planet live in cities. It's just a different experience in cities. And typically when you're trying to get to know someone you know, maybe in an agrarian society, you would ask, uh, whose family do you belong to? You know, oh, I'm so-and-so's cousin. Janine, uh, her extended family were rural Iowa farmers. She would go to visit her grandparents in the country, and the local newspaper would report what they had for dinner that night. And, you know, the grandkids came and visited, and this is what they had, you know, beans and corn. And, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's a family connection. Here it's like, well, what do you do for a living? That's part of how we identify a lot, think of ourselves, or we ask to try to, you know, understand someone. Younger folk, it's maybe the grade you're in is one of the ways that you think of yourself. Or I don't know if you've the strong homeroom identity or something, or if you're a little bit older and going to school, it might be your major is one of those things that becomes a way that you think of yourself or identify yourself, or people are asking, well, what's your major? So I can understand something of you rather than what's your family name? Oh yeah, you're one of them, or which tribe do you belong to? So things are are changing, and of course, now identity is is a big discussion. You know, how do you identify yourself with regard to not just vocation, but you know, nationality or gender or ethnicity? You know, the ways in which we understand ourselves and our tribe 
our people, is shifting. And there may be a variety of ways that you think of yourself. I would love for you guys just to take a second, turn to uh, another person or two, and just list the ways that you feel like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm part of this group, or I understand myself with this kind of identity. You know, likely for most of you, Christianity is in there somewhere. There's probably some other things. Talk to someone. How do you think of yourself? How do you identify yourself? Is there a group that you feel a sense of belonging to? Turn to one another, and those of you at home, make a list. What are the ways that you think of yourself or connect yourself to others? I don't know if out of that list, there's like one or two that feel primary in how you think of yourselves or the tribe, if you will, that you connect yourself to. You know, there are just a variety of ways, depending on who you're talking to, of like, oh, this person will understand this so that I'm going to say, I'm of this tribe. Um, And there's probably, aside from sort of who you're talking to as you think about yourself, this one or two is most meaningful to me. How should those who follow Jesus think of themselves is maybe the question, what is the group identity that we as followers of Jesus own? Um, Well, is it members of the capital C church or FCBC or even a house group like How do we locate our primary group identity? I think it's a tricky question. I'm not sure it's quite as simple as it's spelled out in the book. Um, I do think it has something to do with following Jesus. Um, But, you know, there are people who are wired to be less connected. I don't know how else to put it. Like, if you speak a neogram, who speaks a neogram here? Uh, you know, five, the, the number five. Kind of more, uh, you know, internal living person, and there's less uh, need to feel like you're, you need a companion in life or whatever, you know. So there are people who are wired, you know, like less connected to group identity. Is that okay? Can you be a Christian and still feel like, you know, I just, I don't have a very high need to feel knit in and very much part of this group. I think we're all uh, communal beings. That is, we only exist because of relationship. You're only actually physically here because of at least one relationship. And we can only live because we relate to one another. We're not primarily beings meant to produce stuff, at least as the West thinks of production. We're mostly people who relate. That's how we are. So I think you can be a lone wolf and a good Christian and maybe not have a super high sense of identity with your group or church. You know, maybe it's more the faith or Jesus. So what about those who have less of a need for connection because of how they're built? 
uh, as we think about good. That's a nuance that I'm not sure is addressed much. Um, it's okay to be a bit of a loner if that's just how you're wired. Um, now, I also recognize that most of us white folk in America have uh, a more highly individualistic perspective of life. So uh, my friends around the world in other cultures, uh, even, you know, Southern Europe, Mediterranean culture, very much they are connected to family. I mean, think of the mafia. That's very uh, much think of themselves communally. But for the most part, like my, my friends from around the world or friends of color, their relationship to their cousins is most similar to like my relationship with brothers uh, and sisters. You know, that kind of they're super close to cousins. And so I'm a Western guy. Is it okay, I guess, you know, if the gospel can take on the container of a variety of cultures, where is individualism okay? And often I kick against that and kind of preach against that. But I also, as a uh, cross-cultural proclaimer of the gospel, believe that cultures are basically neutral and the gospel can adapt to a variety of cultures. So individualism, where is that okay to think of yourself within a narrower frame? You think family, and you're just thinking nuclear family. Mom, dad, brother, sisters, or spouse, kids. That's when the word family comes, that's what comes to mind. That's you know, individualistic culture, nuclear, um, as in atomic. Um, so, you know, we have this sense of belonging as well to multiple groups. Is that okay? I feel, you know, for Janine, there are a couple different artist groups that she feels a sense of identity with. One's a, a mishmash of Christian artists, and one's her watercolor artist friends, not all of whom are Christian. You know, how we sense our connectedness to other groups, it may be that it's okay to have a multiple group identities or to feel like this is a group I belong in and this is a group I belong in. And this one group that I belong in, not everyone follows Jesus. Is that okay to have a group identity with others who don't, you know, follow Jesus? Um, We're to be in the world, but not of it. So I think it's okay to have that sense of I belong with this community because I'm in the world. I may not be of this group in the sense that there, there is a spirit about this group that I don't feel like really represents me, but I feel a sense of belonging to them. Those are the ways that I... I wrestle with how do we understand ourselves as part of a community. So let's just think about the church. For those who have said, yes, I'm uh, following Jesus, or I'm seeking Jesus, or I'm on, my, I'm on a journey toward Christ, and I'm not quite sure all that it's involved, but that's, that's a very key way that I think of myself.
Um, I don't know. I, it wasn't that long ago. In my lifetime, whether you were, some of you won't even understand this language, pre-mill, a-mill, post-mill <laughs> was a big deal. It was a big deal. It has to do with how you think the end times are going to roll out. You know, will the uh, millennial reign of Christ, now apologies to all you millennials, he's not talking about you in this theological sense, but like there's a thousand year reign of Christ, a, a sort of obscure reference in Revelation that, you know, people located their sense of identity on whether they believed that, oh, the, the rain is going to come before the rapture. Or no, will we be rescued? And that, what, where, what order does it happen? And that matters in how you think of yourself and who you identify with. When I first uh, joined InterVarsity, the application asked, do you speak in tongues publicly without interpretation? That was important. <laughs> like, oh, you can't, you can't be part of university if you speak in tongues without interpretation publicly. Those were ways that we uh, separated ourselves from others, which I don't know, today seems crazy, but they're going to look at us, of course, and the ways that we separate ourselves, 100 years from now, they're going to say, that was really dumb. There's this uh, comic single-frame comic, um, just sort of stick figures. It says, um, church membership class. And there's a guy, stick figure, pointing to a, a whiteboard that says, movements throughout Christian history. And it's got this line, uh, 1 AD, it's got this line, and then the line splits into two lines. And those two lines split into four lines, and then you get this tree of, you know, movements in Christian history, all the way, you know, they've got this great fan of little uh, segments. And near the end, the uh, pastor who's ever leading the church membership class has circled one of the lines near the end and said, uh, and this is where uh, our movement uh, came, came and got the Bible right. And, uh, <laughs> and someone in the class is saying, Jesus is so lucky to have us. <laughs> You know, I don't know how we think of ourselves within those frames. And certainly uh, within the little line or stream or branch that this church came out of, evangelicalism, that thing is being rethought and redesigned and deconstructed. You know, who knows how many branches, uh, you know, maybe our kids' kids who decide they're going to follow Jesus, which, you know, stem they'll be on. But I thought it would just be cool for us to recite the Nicene Creed. So there are a few different creeds. Not every denomination, not every little stick will say those creeds. The Nicene Creed, Catholic, Orthodox, the variety of branches of Orthodox, and the variety of Protestant denominations, they're like, yeah, that one. We can say that one with you. How about we say the Nicene Creed, along with perhaps a billion people who are living today, and maybe billions 
uh, who have gone before us could all say this and feel like that's the family. That's how I would describe the family. Um, and then, of course, we'd all add different things to it. But yeah, the trunk. Let's say the trunk together. <laughs> so if you can or are inclined, let's stand and uh, repeat the Nicene Creed. And we'll just do kind of a beat or a breath in between each of the statements. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. By the way, the sort of we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic, it's the word Catholic there meaning kind of unified or, you know, uh, we believe in a single church. Like, we believe there is a community known as the followers of Jesus, which we call the church, we believe in it. Had its roots in the apostles. So holy, Catholic, apostolic. That's all we're saying there, not the Roman Catholic. Uh, it, it's interesting what's not in the Nicene Creed, isn't it? Like nothing about the millennium or even hell, you know? Judgment's there. You know, is it eternal conscious? None of that stuff is in the Nicene Creed. None of our debates about uh, what it means to faithfully follow Jesus is in the Nicene Creed. That's just sort of the distilled um, description of Jesus and kind of what happened around Jesus and Father and Spirit. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, Lori Horton or Lori Crosdale is asking what year was that written? Three twenty-five. And there were other creeds that came later, and not everyone was in on them. So 
pretty old. And of course, obviously, there's a modern-ish language version, so I don't know who did the translation on this one and why they chose those different English words. But old, 325, before Catholic Orthodox split and uh, a variety of other things that came before actually the Catholic Orthodox split. There were varieties of Christian groups that debated different things about Father, Son, Spirit. And... So yeah, that's the Nicene Creed. Um, well, how did the, the early church deal with identity? Think of themselves within this group uh, concept. I'll also say, just as a side note, I find my sense of belonging or connectedness changes as I age. Like, sometimes it might be like, oh, you get married and you're in a kind of different group or different category. Think of yourself slightly differently or have kids or those who don't get married, their friends get married, and they're no longer in this sort of same group that they were in because their friends are doing different things. So... As I age, or if you move, or if you change jobs, like all those things shift how you think of your group identity. And so I've changed those things over time. I uh, originally, uh, before and right when Janine and I got married, I thought I would be a minister, a lay minister in the Catholic Church. That's where I had located my sense of identity. Even though I had had a Protestant evangelical conversion, I felt like, no, this is my zip code. This is my neighborhood. This is where I'm going to invest myself. And uh, Janine and I, before getting married, we were married to the Catholic Church. And like right before getting married, we thought, I don't know if we're going to grow best in that context. We're not really rejecting it. It's just that we're trying to figure out within the Christian family where we're going to grow. And we chose uh, FCBC, really. I mean, it's the only church we've ever gone to as a married couple. So um, I think it's still the place I'm growing. Thank you, guys. But what if there's a time where I feel like, I think I'm going to grow better back in the Catholic Church or with the Episcopalians? Like... It's okay to shift group identities as our as we age and needs change. Those are hard questions. So in the early church, there were these co-identities of being Christian and being uh, kosher. I speak Hebrew in Jerusalem, or uh, I speak Greek, like I grew up around Greek-speaking kids in neighborhoods and whatever, where that was the language. And that was a challenge. Oh, you're both Christian and you're kosher because you speak Hebrew. That means you've been brought up in a devout family, devout Jewish family. Oh, you speak Greek? Maybe there's a little, a few toxins in your Jewishness or whatever. And so... Uh, the the apostles were, for the most part, kosher, uh, Hebrew-speaking people, and they collected all the money, and they created a new bank. Like, okay, the Bible says there should be no poor among you. Deuteronomy, let's make that happen. 
Everyone put your money in and we'll dish it out. And maybe if none of us live crazy opulent, we can all live well. None of us will live super poor and none of us will live super opulent. Let's do it that way. Well, it turns out that the less kosher Greek-speaking single moms, they were called widows, weren't getting the money their way, you know. So these uh, Hebrew-speaking kosher purse string managers somehow weren't getting stuff to the Greek-speaking single moms. The welfare system wasn't getting out to the a whole community of people. And so the people who identified as Greek speakers said, there's a problem here. And the interesting solution was that the Jewish, uh, more kosher, Hebrew-speaking folks said, okay, let's give the purse strings over to the Greek speakers and hope that they will give you know our Hebrew-speaking single moms enough money, not due to our moms what we did, whether inadvertently, and you know, maybe language was an issue in the distribution. Who knows whether there was intentional bias, unintentional bias, or simply miscommunication, but whatever it was, they had these identities. We're Greek-speaking, and we're being left out. Okay, Greek-speaking, you know, the, the list of people that they said, oh, we turned the purse strings over to these people, they were all Greek names. The assumption is, oh, they let them sort of figure this out which is fascinating as you think about people economically left out in our societies. What if we turned purse strings over and said, okay, you figure out how to manage this. Anyway, my point is people thought of themselves as Christians and kosher, Jewish, Hebrew speaking, or Greek, maybe somewhat assimilated to Greek culture, at least with the language. Well, that's Acts 6. Acts 15, it gets even more intense because now you've got uncircumcised, pork-eating barbarians who are also calling themselves Christians. And they identify as uncircumcised, pork-eating. They may not identify as barbarians, but like, that's who I am. Yeah. I go to gymnasium. Is that okay? Like, I speak Greek and I live in, you know, Spain. And now the, you know, kosher Hebrew-speaking folk are like, what do we do here? And they decide, yeah, you can be Greek, identify as Greek and as Christian, and not have to get circumcised and obey the laws. What's interesting in that, so this is Acts 15, uh, the Nicene Creed comes out of the council at Nicaea. The first council is considered the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15. To define, you know, whenever intense things come up, we've got to call folk together and just decide, what is this? How do we decide it? So this is the first council. Uh, Nicaea was uh, several councils later. Um, so in the Jerusalem council, it's like, yeah, you can, you can be Christians and be Greek and uncircumcised. However, there's a few things. You, you would do well to, they, this weird list. Okay, sexual immorality, you kind of get that. Like we've got this ethic 
that we want to uphold. Those of you coming from Greek cultures have a whole different experience in this area. Uh, also, food sacrifice to idols. You do well like can, if you can manage that. Oh, by the way, uh, strangled animals. Try not to do that. Blood, you know, that blood pudding. Set aside those things. Uh, I, I don't know. I get the sense that you would do well to avoid these things. I wonder if they're more um, practical table fellowship rules. That is, we want you still to eat together because that's really important. So if you're going to have Jewish Christians at your table, you can't have these things. Like, it's easier for you to do without them than to make them eat these things. So, like, that's important. Anyway, it's another way that they're trying to figure out, oh, these co-identities of being Greek and having this set of rules and being Jewish and having this set of rules and being Christians, like, how do we manage these combinations that feel a little bit um, disconnected? I wonder, I think I'd like to propose, and this is coming from someone who um, is in this kind of field as a Christian minister, you know, in the area of missions or global engagement. How about citizenship? You know, kingdom of God was probably the number one topic in Jesus' sermons. So this idea of citizenship being the primary thing that Jesus talked about. And maybe for those who are younger or those of any age, think of it as you're invited into an enchanted land that is run by a pauper prince. Um, And that's the invitation into this enchantment. And you're going to be a citizen of this. And... uh, uh, there is a theologian professor called Scott with one T, McKnight, uh, North Park Seminary professor, he was at one time. He says, oh, when you look at the kingdom of God, and in fact, you know, when you search for the gospel of, in quotes, almost always it is followed by the kingdom. The good news, what is the gospel? Oh, it's about, you know, personal relationship, uh, It's about a kingdom. It's about a realm. It's about an enchanted land. That's what the good news is about. So he says, oh, the understanding of kingdom of God, it must include the king. Like we like to use kingdom language sometimes without its association with a king. That's, you know, when they heard that, they knew Yahweh and in the New Testament, you know, Yahweh gives kingship over to Jesus. Jesus is the king. That's important when you think about kingdom of God. Uh, he also suggests that uh, it's about a, a governing, like it's a king who has this quality of being super obsessed with re- redemption and renewal. I just want to renew everything. I want to make all things new. That's the nature of the king, and I want to govern benevolently and good 
over the enchanted land that I'm um, over. And then it's got to also um, involve a people. And time and space. Like, it's not ethereal. So, you know, those of you, when you hear enchanted, you think myth or whatever, that's not, you know, it's got to be time and space. It's got to occupy the planet. Kingdom of God is occupying the planet with a king that has certain qualities and people. That kind of citizenship is what I'm challenging us to think of. So, you know, do you belong to the kingdom before you believe? Maybe. There are some ways that I have seen. I've seen, by the way, kingdom of God in some really horrific places. Just a couple weeks ago, I was visiting a few uh, uh, fragile informal settlements outside of Mexico City. So, you know, you've got these cities that are growing faster than infrastructure can keep up. It's, you know, accelerating. Slum communities are accelerating throughout the planet. And so they don't have services. They're living in uh, pretty basic accommodations. Um, No water, electricity, you know, that kind of thing. So this ministry, Christian ministry, called Urban Mosaic, what they do is they find a few people who are leading leaders in that community and ask them, what do you want? What do you want to see? Uh, And they'll say, here's how to call the community together to figure out what the community wants. This one community we were in, a couple of ladies were like, we want a paved road. We live on a mudslide, basically. We want a paved road. Well, to get a paved road, you know, you've got to get the government come in and put uh, sewage in. They're not going to pave without, and you can't just do it yourself. So here's how to approach the government. So they begin working with these communities. And lo and behold, as the community starts to experience some aspect of development, people begin recognizing there's something unique about these folk. And so evangelism in these places is just like they start belonging to this community and start being drawn in by these people and say, I, I want to believe what you believe. So believe comes after belonging in this case. And then behavior. Like, so there are some places where, oh, you got to, it feels like you got to behave. Uh, and then you got to believe, and then you can belong. That order can be switched around a little bit. So I love this uh, tattoo, this cross. Got it in Cairo, Egypt. Probably heard me talk about it. So a, a Orthodox or Coptic uh, garbage collector community where, um, and actually it's not just unique to this community, all Coptic Christians at least at that time, this is 2007 that I got this, put this mark on their babies. You belong before you believe. This is their baptism. Like, you are part of this community. We're going to mark your body permanently so that you know that you belong. So, And in some Christian traditions, baptism, which is a ceremony of belonging, that happens before anyone believes. So baptize, belong, 
then believe, behave. So this kind of continuum of how we enter group identity or how we come to understand our community, it can be a different order. Um, I'm not sure that we necessarily say this is the order it has to happen in, but we need to recognize some people belong first. And then they, like in this place in Mexico, another place, Kolkata, so a a Kiwi, a, a New Zealander, moved into Kolkata with his family and decided, let's move into the biggest red light district in Asia, Sonagachi, the neighborhood, and let's give another alternative to sex work, to sex workers there, and just see what happens. So they built a t-shirt factory. He didn't know anything about fabric or whatever, and so began small, bustling place. Really amazing to walk through. And so like this place in Mexico City that I was at, there was a birthday celebration or something, Loud, loud laughter and talking. Oh my gosh, the energy level and hilarity in this room was amazing. Same thing in Kolkata. Like this factory, besides the clicking of sewing machines, these women just laughing and tossing stuff at one another. And uh, the guy who started it would shout out in a room, what are we making here? And all the ladies, one voice, shout out, freedom. We're not making t-shirts, we're making freedom. And so this sense of being part of a neighborhood or a job where there was a sense of shalom built this identity in a neighborhood or in a business where they thought of themselves in these categories, but they had this other quality. Just fascinating to see. I feel like this is a sign Like it's a sign of God's reign, this laughter, this uh, group of people having a choice and choosing, um, you know, to to make t-shirts. These things were ways in which citizenship lens felt like it fit better than, you know, belonging to a church. I wonder, my invitation for those of you following Jesus, think of yourselves in terms of citizenship, how you choose to connect your belonging to a different kind of nation to which you pledge allegiance. Uh, Can you be a dual citizen? You know, for me personally, I cannot say pledge of allegiance because of how I think of those words. Others do, you know, where we draw the being in the world but not of the world line might be differently. Peace upon you. Um, but I thinking of myself as a citizen of the kingdom limits how I think of my relationship to other entities or nationalities. If we want to embrace a citizenship of the kingdom, I think of Colossians, you know, one, Colossians one. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son. He loves in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins, that I've been transferred out of one kingdom into another kingdom, and it has consequences for how I think of myself, how I think of my actions. And I realize, you know, Galatians talks about, uh, you know, 
in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, man nor woman. So, you know, dealing with these various identities. I'm not sure that Paul there is saying, oh, you erase these things. It's just like there is a way that you think of yourself beyond these categories as being in Christ. And Colossians, it's like, or, or 2 Corinthians. Anyone who's in Christ is brand new, brand new baby, brand new creation. Old things are gone, new things, and you are now reconciled and have a ministry assignment of reconciliation. That's how you're to think of yourself. So you clothe yourself with Christ according to Second uh, Corinthians and Galatians. It's like these are ways that you think of yourself in your citizenship role. So your tribe transcends time. There are some in your tribe who are dead, or as the writers of the New Testament put, asleep. So you're in a trans-temporal enchanted kingdom run by a pauper prince who was rejected and then exalted like you're part of this new nation made up of people from other geographies. It's not geographical. Made up of both the living and the dead. And this community that we're part of, we have important disagreements. Some of which we have to reconcile. And others of which don't matter. And it's really hard to tell which are which which puts us in really awkward places with people. But you know, some of them ought to be figured out, and we ought to come to agreement. And some of them don't matter. And we often don't know which ones are which. But we're part of this community and this citizenship. And we are all given this assignment to renew all things, along with the prince. I want you to make everything new with me. You're invited into that. That's one way, from my perspective, to think of our group identity. Citizens together with the living and the dead from a variety of places, having a variety of important issues that we differ on, some of which matter and need to be sorted out, and some of which don't. And we're all co-laborers in this new kingdom to bring newness to those things around us. People, planet, the systems and structures, acknowledging there is one king. It's important to know who that king is. It's important for people to understand who the president of this nation is and to choose to come under this president's uh, rule. Those are all parts of it, but it's about a kingdom. That's my stab at group identity. Next week, you get to hear from Dr. Shauna Izell. So we got to enjoy the Izell family singers. We'll get to enjoy uh, Christian's mom, who is a um, therapist, counselor, and uh, doctor. And she's going to take a look at group identity from her experiences and from her perspective, which I'm eager to hear from. So let me pray for us and... Send us out into this lovely spring day as agents of renewal in the, in the enchanted land of God. God, 
our brother Christ, our counselor, Holy Spirit. What a mystery. I don't completely understand how the three of you are one, but I'm glad of it. I accept it. And I thank you for making those who said yes to you one as well, though it doesn't feel like it all the time. Would you show us what it looks like to be citizens of your kingdom while we live here on earth and hold different colored passports and live in different places with a variety of rules with this assignment to make all things new, to invite people to consider coming into your nation, kingdom, land. I thank you for this little neighborhood in the kingdom here called FCBC. Wow. What I have learned and appreciated and been burdened over by this little neighborhood. I bless it in Jesus' name, and I bless its impact in the neighborhood that it exists in when it comes together and in the neighborhoods it exists in when we go home. Bring more of your kingdom in us and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't believe.